I literally snapped and I went after him. I charged him on a school bus. I bit through his winter coat, his sweater, his shirt, his t-shirt, and into his skin enough to cause 16 stitches. Wow. But the difference is when the blood hit my tongue, it was like fireworks went off inside me. Welcome to Ripley's Believe It or Not cast, the podcast that brings you deep into the strange, the bizarre, and the unusual. I'm Ryan Clark. And I'm Brent Donaldson. So, Ryan, let's give folks a bit of a warning here. If you're bothered by blood, this episode's maybe not for you. Uh, Today, we're talking about real vampires, people who walk among us. Maybe it's your grocery store clerk or the nurse at your local clinic or even your priest. People who sometimes, for the lack of a better word, describe themselves as vampires. And to do that, we're going to step into another world for a moment, the shadow world of New Orleans, Louisiana. So let's walk through the alleys of the French Quarter, steeped in tradition and mystery and its acceptance of all walks of life. We are sitting at the St. Louis Cathedral with the humidity wrapped around us like a wet blanket. All around us are musicians and tourists and practitioners of magic, including Jezebel DeLuna, a fortune teller and self-proclaimed vampire. Vampires, of course, have been around in legend in some form or another since the Egyptians, who had a god that drank the blood of dead men. But we would have to wait until the late 1800s for Bram Stoker to introduce us to the most famous of vampires, Dracula. With the amount of books, movies, television shows, and yes, even podcasts that are produced about vampires, it could be said they've never been more popular. And Ryan, I guess I didn't realize until we started researching this episode, but the population of self-identified vampires in the United States is actually growing. Um, These are people who are totally convinced there's something medically wrong with them. And possibly for that reason, they're largely a group that's terribly shy and fearful of public ridicule. So to start us off, let's talk to Jezebel, who grew up feeling like an outsider. She knew she was different, she says, but didn't really know how. It took years and a family friend's help, but Jezebel says she finally came to the conclusion that she is a pranic vampire, which, as she explains, is just one category of real vampires. There are four different types of vampirism. You have your sanguines that they're your blood drinkers. It's like it keeps them balanced. Then you have your empaths. They are the ones that feed off emotion. Um, they can go into a room. They can change the whole flow of what everybody's mood was. If they were happy, now they're all of a sudden upset. If they were upset, now they're overly bouncing off the walls. It's like, depending on what energy they need, 
that's what they they can do. Your size, your psychic vampires have been getting a little bit more acknowledgement recently because everybody knows, oh, this person comes near me, all of a sudden I feel like I have headaches or I feel drained because that's what they do. They feed off of psychic energy. And then you have your tantric or pranic um, feeders. They are the ones that feed off of sexual energy. Now let's meet Dr. John Browning, visiting lecturer at the Georgia Institute of Technology. Dr. Browning knows the vampire community and actually spent much of his time living with them in New Orleans for about two years while he worked on his doctoral dissertation, an ethnographic study of people who self-identify as vampires. The difference between uh, the popular culture vampire, the folkloric vampire, the vampire you read in fiction that lives forever and turns into bats or whatnot is, is worlds away from this other population of vampires. And, and they are referred to interchangeably as real vampires, human vampires, or modern vampires. And I think th those three names that are interchangeable are to try to help people understand this distinction between the two. Real vampire, not as in they are real supernatural vampires, but real as in they are real life. They're not fiction. Human vampires, another distinction that was used, because they are human. They're not creatures, you know, that uh, are dead. Um, and then modern vampire, as in this sort of modern take or modern conception of, of, of vampires, not something old-fangled that we might read about in the Victorian period. And this is the best way to approach thinking about this population, is they are not people who were watching a lot of vampire films, reading vampire literature, you know, wearing capes to high school. Mm -hmm. And then eventually they sit down and say, you know what, I, I wear all these, these trappings, these clothing, these markers that, that look like this gothic figure I love in film and literature. Why don't I just go ahead and start trying blood too? It's, it's not the case. It's, it's actually the case that they come in contact with blood by accident. Um, and this often starts just after puberty. And once they have tasted that blood, it does something to them. It certainly did something to Czar, who you heard briefly at the beginning of this episode talking about biting the school bully on the school bus. Czar is Belfazar Ashanti son, a self-proclaimed sanguine vampire who lives in New Orleans and helps run a voodoo shop. Here's the full account of what happened that day on the bus. When I was 11 years old... One of my uncles on my mom's side was, was an especially cruel little freak. And uh, one day he's picking on my sister on her church bus. And I understand, always weak, always sickly, always. And I see him picking on my sister and I snapped. I literally snapped. And I went after him. I charged him on a school bus. And him being bigger and stronger kind of pinned my arms down. And I guess you could say instinct took over because all I did was rear back and latched into it. I bit through his winter coat, his sweater, his shirt, his t-shirt, and into his skin enough to cause 16 stitches. Wow. But the difference is when the blood hit my tongue it was like fireworks went off inside me 
the rest of the day I was running and I was playing and I was keeping up with everybody and wasn't allowed on the school on the church bus no more but <laughs> we felt good but I felt good let's back up here a minute Ryan Dr. Browning says that the communities of vampires for people like Czar really only formed in the 1970s even though real vampires have been around for centuries well I imagine people have been consuming blood uh, for, for a long 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 time Uh, and doing so without calling themselves some sort of creature or some sort of name. And they probably did it because it made them feel more healthy or whatnot. But in terms of people who were taking blood and then beginning to give themselves this name, adapt it, the word vampire, we know since at least the, the early to mid-1970s that people have been doing this. Um, in the 70s, we had BDSM bondage conventions where people would attend and people who were starting to call themselves vampire or even even if they didn't use that term they were essentially a real vampire without calling themselves that yet and they would meet at these conventions blood fetishists people who are roused by having their blood taken and of course they're like you want to drink my blood a little bit well sure you can do that that's awesome that that makes me that helps fulfill my own fantasy and so it was this interchange of or exchange of um pleasures and needs uh, and that we also in the 70s had the beginnings of these dark shadows conventions. And there, too, you would find um, human or real vampires in attendance, and they would find other people like themselves or others who wouldn't mind or who would be receptive to having their blood taken. By the 1980s and early 90s, we started having um, Anne Rice conventions where the same thing was happening. And, and by the, the, the 80s, we started to see these groups and in the 90s exchange these fanzines or self-printed um, newsletters at home that would be distributed to people within uh, the, the vampire community. So at, th at that point, we start to see the earliest beginnings of it becoming um, organized. I just, I just erased it. So, um, Ryan, what 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 conventions did you used to go to back then? Were you in, were you at the you weren't a blood fetishist, were you? Were you into the sadomaso <laughs> thing, or were you a bondage guy? What was your thing? I'd have to say that out of all of them, I can't choose a favorite. You right? can't pick just one. I don't want to insult everybody else, so I, uh, I just say it's a, it's a tie between all of them. So today, Czar is firmly entrenched in the vampire community of New Orleans. But back when he had the moment on the bus that he calls his awakening, when he tasted blood for the first time, he didn't know anything about the network of people like him that he would eventually join. He only knew something had just changed. Suddenly, his constant feeling of sickness was gone. He was able to run and play with the other children on the playground. He felt healthy. Luckily for him, there was someone else on the bus that day that could help him. And she would change his life forever. Back when I was first in the vampire community, we used to have a network of people that would be around and keep an eye out in specific areas. Because there's this little thing that we used to call the beacon. Another vampire can feel another vampire or another vampire getting ready to awaken. Okay. So there was this woman named Ashanti White Mantle. She was the she was the force behind everything in my world. Um, 
she saw the whole event. She was riding on the church bus, playing the nice little Christian woman. Um, but she pulled my mom aside and she goes, I think your son might be like me. And they had this whole discussion with my mom arguing with her and other things. And, and after about two hours, Ashanti comes over to me and says, your mom says, I can teach you now. Wow. You had somebody on the bus. I mean, if that's not some kind of... Kismet. Yeah, that's the word I was going to say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the church bus. Yeah. Wow. I don't understand a lot of the a lot of the vampires that I know. They didn't start off as pagans. They started off as supremely religious Christian people. Ashanti would follow Czar and watch out for him for the better part of his life, uh, mentoring him on the ways of modern day vampires. She would teach him how to feed because when he fed, he felt energized, like he could do anything. He was normal. She made him feel more confident. Finally, he belonged to something. So this was back in the 70s, gotcha. 78 to be precise. Okay. Um, 76 is when I turned 11. Um, she had me under her wing from 76 to 78. Wow. Taught me what it was like to be me. Taught me not to be afraid of it. Taught me to, for lack of a better word, embrace it. Did you use this word back then? Vampire? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. When she came to me and and, uh, and proffered the ideal, she says, I think you're like me. The word vampire wasn't used just then. She said, and this is what it takes for me. And she listed off a bunch of things. And 11-year-old me wasn't thinking, great, I'm a superhero. 11-year-old me was going, shit, something else to set me apart from the rest of the family. Over those two years, I learned to accept what I was, and I became a full member of the vampire community in 1978. Vampires feed off of people they call donors, or people who volunteer to let others suck their blood. Sometimes the donors are paid. Other times, the act of being fed upon is payment enough. The first time Czar fed, he had to figure out how much he would need and how long he could go without blood. Well, we did a little bit of trial and... and error on my behalf to see to see how long I could go without to see when it started wearing off to see if I could just drink beef blood or if I really needed just human blood and is that a thing do you do does animal blood work for some some animal blood will work for it didn't work for me it would curb the craving but it wouldn't do anything to satiate the hunger. And I wonder, forgive the ignorance here, but what's the difference? Or do we know? Flavor. Oh. Life force. And okay. something about the permission. Animals can't give permission for you to feed on them. So a lot of people who do feed off of animals will go to like kosher butchers. And they'll grit. Get jars full of blood from kosher butchers. I guess there's an agreement made there. Is there a payment? That's exchange. Always going to be payment. It's a service. Got it. Anyway, let's go back. <laughs> so the first time, who did you feed off of, and how did that work? The first time was um, a gentleman by the name of Mars. Just Mars. Okay. And did Ashanti 
pair you up with this person, or how did that work? Did. That makes um, sense. Did work with me. Um, even back then, uh, but back then they were using crass terms like blood doll, and you know, the, they were kind of passed around. They weren't really respected for what they were doing. There is a mutual exchange uh, for him because they didn't have diagnoses like ADHD back then. Uh, it made him calmer through the drinking of blood. Czar actually spent 11 years working as a nurse, so over time he developed a way of feeding that he says is sterile and minimizes the occurrence of scars. In fact, Czar says he's had the same donor for a decade, a person he feels a close personal connection to. When it's time to feed, the ritual begins when Czar makes a small incision on the donor's back. Usually on the back of the shoulder where there's a lot of meat. It also has a tendency not to scar as bad. Well, I developed that technique all on my own, especially in the sanguine community. A lot of the sanguine vampires will do things like take phlebotomy classes. Just as Czar had to learn how to feed on his donors, Dr. Browning knew there was something he had to do for his dissertation, something that was going to be very difficult. He needed to observe someone feeding. And eventually it took me a while to find the, the vampire community in uh, New Orleans. I won't go into the particular details because I'll be talking forever. But eventually I did. And, uh, and eventually they I gained their trust and they allowed me to shadow them for the next couple of years. And eventually it didn't take long that I started to sort of rethink my perception of them. And uh, I didn't think they were crazy at all. Um, I thought they were, I don't like using the word normal because it's social construct, but they were what you would otherwise call normal. But the vampire community is ultra secretive. And because they keep the identities of their donors so secret, Browning was certain he would not be allowed to watch a feeding. So he volunteered instead. To be clear, there are a lot of ways to donate. How vampires ingest the blood can differ depending on the situation. Sometimes vampires will make a cut, then lick the blood off the skin. Other times they will draw the blood from a donor and pour it into a glass to drink. Still other times they may just store it away for a future meal. But Dr. Browning experienced something so odd after his feeding, he still can't explain it even to this day. And eventually I told them that, you know, I would eventually have to watch or document a few of you feeding. But I could tell that they, some of them might have had donors that don't mind being outed like that. But for the most part, it's something that they keep very private and secret. Um, some of these donors are paid monetarily. Some are paid through sexual favors. Some are blood fetishes. So simply the act of having their blood taken is payment enough. Uh, but still keeping those those donors anonymous and secret is very important to real vampires. So eventually I got to the point where I was like, you know, one of the only ways I'm going to get this research done, this, this part of the research is just sort of to offer myself. And that's what I did. This particular uh, vampire, um, wound care has been extremely important to him. In fact, he was the one that wrote many years ago this document that the vampires called the, the Donor Bill of Rights. And it's, 
And it's basically a way of saying this, these are the rights that donors have and these are the ethical concerns that we have to keep in mind. And for him, wound care is extremely important. Um, he first sterilized or cleaned the area. He also used mouthwash on himself and did things to his own mouth. And then after he uh, opened and took a brand new scalpel that was sterile, he made a small incision on my back. Uh, usually just by pricking very quickly somewhere and then squeezing the area around the fresh wound to make the blood flow out and then he would consume blood as he squeezed it out. And did that several times. Then afterwards, immediately, he, he cleaned the wound up and then bandaged it. And it all I can say is I couldn't feel my blood coming out, but it felt like someone was giving me a hickey, uh, which which makes sense. But this is fascinating. And and later that day, after we did that that session, the, the real vampires were meeting in Jackson Square in New Orleans because we were going to be feeding the homeless for our Easter feeding. And uh, while I was out there watching and documenting and making my notes, as I usually do, I suddenly felt this, I can only describe it as sort of a bomb of energy zapping out of me. Like, oh, I just felt like I went from being terrific to like I had been standing around for two days. And I felt completely de-energized to the point where I had to sit down. And later we were sitting down at dinner and um, the uh, well, we once the feeding went well, we went to a nearby restaurant, several of us. And... Uh, Someone brought up the fact that sometimes with some donors, even though not much blood is taken, uh, they feel this overwhelming sense of, of energy drain. And I just, my jaw dropped because I was like, well, I just experienced that. And, and my vampire didn't take hardly any, any blood at all. He probably took as much blood as your common nosebleed. Uh, but I just felt zapped, completely zapped. It was very, very odd. It was one of the few moments, and there are just a few, where something even I can't explain happened uh, during my experiences with, with, with real vampires. I want to know how much money it would take for you to be a donor. Five bucks. <laughs> I was going to say, I mean, I was going to say an, a really, really small amount of money. I wasn't going to say $5, but I was going to say a surprisingly small. How much really, though? How much would it take? Well, if I was a, if I was a PhD candidate, right, I, I would probably volunteer my time or um what if you were a podcaster oh man 250 <laughs> two dollars 250 no 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 two two bucks two bucks 50 cents i would think like i always like to play that how much game and i would think i would do it for a thousand dollars probably a thousand dollars yeah wow i mean what do you think really he was czar it's a nurse he knows what he's doing. So you're saying the price goes down because he's a professional. There's less risk involved, so you would take less dough. Um, well, yeah. I mean, if yeah, if the vampire were a uh, right. neurosurgeon, <laughs> right, right, right. take a couple hundred bucks. You're good to go. Quarter. <laughs> so that's how sanguine vampires feed. Psychic vampires and tantric or pranic vampires feed differently. Jezebel says that when she was young, she would feed or take the energy from individuals 
boyfriends or other friends, but not anymore. She says that will leave people too drained. So now she only takes the energy from large groups of people. I don't feed off of one-on-one only because I know it'll be very intense when I do. Um, so I'd rather wait until I'm in a large crowd. Football game, okay. um, parade, um, when there's a mob of people. At that point, the energy is not per individual. It's a mass. And since it's considered ambient, I don't have to replace the void because it's already there. I can just swoosh. So Ryan, how would you feed? Would you be a, a licker? Mm. A cutter? Um, something else? I'm not really, like, I don't really mind blood. Like, I got allergy shots when I was a kid, so I don't really mind, like, needles or, or, or blood or... I've never been that way. So I think from... But I think I wouldn't want to cause somebody else, like, pain or, you know... You know what I mean? So you wouldn't be a biter. I don't think so. No, no. I think I would be probably like a little bit of a, like you you cut a little bit and then probably lick, probably. Ew. But I've also spent a lot of time thinking about this. So, I mean, I was probably kind of ridiculously prepared for this question. Oh, really? Um, yeah, I don't know what I would do. Um, yeah, this is, you haven't thought about it at all. Probably, no, well, so. I mean, a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, as much as one would is what you're saying. Yeah. You're right. right. Yeah. Like, yeah, I think I would cut a small incision and then use a crazy straw <laughs> with the loops and the things like the kids get. Yeah. Yeah. Make it fun. I, I like that. I like that. Back across town in the voodoo shop in the French Quarter, Czar is entertaining customers just as he's done for the past 30 years. He's also answering questions. After graduating high school, he says he did a stint in the Air Force, and as we mentioned, he worked as a nurse for more than a decade before settling in New Orleans, the city where everyone is accepted. This is where he now mentors other human vampires, and he says they're identifiable because they give off a certain frequency, or beacon. Everybody pulls through a frequency, okay? Um, Vampires tend to pull through a similar frequency. So you can walk by a gay man and go, that's a gay man. But then you can walk by another gay man and go, damn, he looks good. Why he hooked up with a woman? You know? So it just depends on the gay man what kind of frequency they're giving off. But vampires all give off almost the same frequency. Think about it in the form of uh, radar. Uh Vampires show up differently. Or, better yet, you've watched the X-Men movies, right? Uh Uh-huh. Professor Xavier puts on Cerebro. And the first thing he does is show all the humans. And they show up blue. And then he switches over to the mutants. And they all show up red. 
It's what it's like for me. If I close my eyes and I actually focus, I see a different spectrum. Dr. Browning says modern-day vampires are everywhere, hiding in plain view. They have all different kinds of careers and families and hobbies. They're just like you and me. But he's careful to point out that there's no way to prove that there's a medical reason for their need for blood. There's no way of proving physically that they have this need. Uh, but there are other things that, that exist that we can't prove either. I mean, we can't prove by blood that someone's a homosexual. We have to just sort of take their word for it. Um, and there are lots and lots and lots of, of people who were gay who say, this is the way I've been since I was a kid. Again, we can't measure that. We can't say, oh, there's the gene that made you this way. Um, I sort of use that analogy for people in the real vampire community. Um, that they say this, they all have extremely similar stories, thousands and thousands of them, but we can't diagnose it, we can't measure it, we can't look for this gene that's causing it. So we just have to go by what they tell us. So I definitely think it's plausible for there to be uh, 5,000. In fact, I think most real vampires aren't even affiliated with any particular community or house or group. They sort of go, go at it on their own. Even professionally, they were very normal. Uh, some people, uh, there was one particular vampire who owned a landscaping business. Another one worked in a shop in the French Quarter. Another one was a bartender. I think one was a secretary. And uh, I didn't get to meet with this particular vampire, but I know that he worked uh, for the phone company or something. He climbed uh, telephone poles or something uh, for a living. And so they, that also gives this outward appearance, their professions, of this sense of normalcy. And that's important for a few reasons. A, it, I think it's good for us outsiders because it lets us know that they're, they're not very different from us with the you know, exception of something that they require. And it's also good for them because it allows them to continue doing what they're doing uh, in plain sight, hiding in plain sight. The New Orleans vampire community has branched out to other cities like Atlanta and Austin. This happens especially during times of major floods in New Orleans. But according to Browning's research, the New Orleans vampire community remains particularly strong. In fact, its members even participate in philanthropic efforts in their neighborhoods. Uh, Dr. Browning told us that at various points throughout the year, he's witnessed vampires helping to feed the area homeless and just feed the homeless, not feed on the homeless. Correct. Yes. Uh, I think what it all boils down to is you, you, everybody can believe what they want. You know, maybe this is a medical condition. Maybe it's not. Uh, it's not really something I, I care to debate. But I think what I take away from all this, uh, Brent, is that there's a lot of different people in the world. Uh, they're different for a lot of reasons that we may not be able to explain. Uh, but like everyone, uh, they all just want to be accepted in some way. And if we can help shed a little light on that and give people some education, then maybe that can happen. We'd like to thank Dr. Browning and Jezebel and Czar for sharing their stories with us, as well as our old friend Tim Safranco, who assisted with the interviews in New Orleans. Tim, thank you, thank you. So, Ryan, sticking with the theme of vampires, have you ever heard the story of how the CIA faked vampire attacks to frighten Filipino rebels in the 1950s? Check out our website, ripleys.com, and learn about how, at the height of the Cold War, the CIA killed rebels and altered their bodies to make it look like it was done by local vampires. Believe it or not. Did the tactic work? You can find out and read other amazing stories at ripleys.com. 
All right, Ryan. So it's time for the season finale version of the or not portion of the show. You remember what that is? I do. Yes. It's the portion where we put modern day facts to the test because you can't always believe what you hear. So today we've explored the lives of modern day vampires or those who believe they must take some kind of blood or human energy to survive. While the legend of vampires can be traced all the way back to the ancient Egyptians and the goddess Sekhmet, who slaughtered men and drank their blood, the popularity of vampires really didn't enter the mainstream until Bram Stoker published Dracula in 1897. Though it was only moderately popular in its time, the book has become one of the most widely read and adapted works in all of literature, serving as the definitive vampire novel. And most think that Stoker based his lead character on the real historical figure Vlad the Impaler, or Vlad Tepes, whose family name was Dracula. Vlad was famous for impaling his enemies and showcasing their heads on long wooden spikes, but Vlad wasn't the only real-life historical figure that Stoker took inspiration from. According to National Geographic, Stoker also based the character of Dracula on Hungarian noblewoman Elizabeth Bathory, who lived during the late 16th century and early 17th century and was nicknamed the Blood Countess because she was accused of having dozens of young women killed. Many claimed she also bathed in their blood, and most of these sadistic accusations were proven true when she went on trial, and more than 300 survivors and witnesses testified against her. But because of her royal lineage, she avoided a death sentence and was instead imprisoned in a room in her castle for three years until she died in 1614 at age 54. Does that make her a vampire? No. And it goes against a lot of what we've heard today. Our guests on this show just believe they have a special need for blood or energy. They're simply different from others in the mainstream population. And at Ripley's, we celebrate those who are different or special or unique. We love telling these kinds of stories. We always have and we always will. Believe us or not. Ripley's Believe It or Not cast is produced by myself, Ryan Clark, and Sabrina Seek. Our executive producer is Amanda Joyner. I edit the show. Is it okay if I say that now? I think it's fine. Uh, the Notcast is recorded at the historic Herzog Studio, home of the nonprofit Cincinnati USA Music Heritage Foundation. Visit Herzog in person or sign up online at herzogmusic.com. The Notcast intro theme was put together by Colton Cruz, and our ending theme song is by the band Wussy. As always, you know, I hope by now, um, if you enjoyed the show, that you've left a review. Please do. But yeah, there's still a chance to do that. You can do that. Please go do that. Leave a leave a nice review for us. Please. Do it. Yeah. Just do it. Um, if you have comments, questions, or ideas, email us at notcast at ripleys.com or tweet at ripleys. Now, we really hope you enjoyed this first season, and we're happy to say this is not the end. Tell them. Tell them, Ryan. Uh this isn't the end thank you so much for joining us for the first season of Ripley's Believe It or Not cast greetings ladies and gentlemen my name is Belfazar Ashanisen I am a sanguine vampire and I am also a New Orleans traditional voodoo priest
Yo, this is George Dr. Frankenstein and Clinton, and you're listening to Ripley's Believe It or Not. I believe it. They do the dog, y'all.